How do you show respect for a franchise you grew up with, like, say, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that is built on gross-out humor and absurdity and is something that people just straight-up love because of that? You make it stupid good. That's exactly what production designer and animator Yashar Kasai did. His reverence for the franchise shines in this gritty, messy, and outright fun world of the new movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Yashar was the production designer for the film, which I'll get into what that means in our conversation. He was also an artist on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and was named one of Variety's 10 animators to watch. He worked on Into the Spider-Verse, the original, and Mitchell's versus the Machines. And all of these films have been acclaimed for their work in pushing the boundaries in animation. Well, animated movies these days have typically been more synonymous with smooth lines and bright colors and symmetry, this conventional beauty of like Disney and Pixar. Yashar and his team have been driving in the exact opposite direction, spearheading this new wave of innovation in the industry by adding depth and complexity and messiness to animated films through thoughtful design. Mutant Mayhem has been getting rave reviews, including the New York Times, for its creative design that is captivating audiences ranging from adults to children to people like me who have never seen any Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. And it's all around the work they're doing to push the envelope to tell better stories in animation. In our conversation, we discuss everything from Yashar and the team's process to building a unified, cohesive world within an animated film to capturing the messiness of lame but awesome teenagers, read, real teenagers, two things can be true at once, and also about how tech and AI are influencing the creative process within the animation world and outside of it, how that is impacting the industry and things we need to be watching out for. And finally, my favorite thing that we unpacked was how Western animation is really only scratching the surface when it comes to the exploration of themes and tones in audiences in general. And there's so much more to be done in that space. Whether you're pursuing animation or sticking with live action, this conversation distills down to things that we should be tracking when recognizing great storytelling and great filmmaking across the board. And now my conversation with Yashar Kasai. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Yashar, to the No Film School podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, after my partner had told me multiple times to, to watch it. I was, I was working <laughs> at this kid's grief camp, and I was like completely off the grid, but I had him send me voice memos. And throughout the week, he kept telling me in the voice memos, like as a one-off, you know, when you're like rambling and telling somebody, he's like, by the way, this movie, so good. We have to watch it. We have to watch it. And like, he kept coming back to it. And then I like was jokingly voice memoing him back about how 
how how it's the bar of movies. And then he's, I promised I'd watch it with him. And then I watched it without him. But I said I'd watch it again. But then because, good. Yeah. That, did he know that you watched it without him the first time or he was aware? I, I, he knew that we had this coming up and, and then he's like, I wish you would have waited for me. <laughs> and I was like, I had to watch it. I didn't know when I'd have time, but I'll watch it with you again. So that's well, how he much- sold it so hard too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was such a, like, so refreshing. I'm so fatigued by animation that feels like, you know, I grew up in the Bay area. Of course I love Pixar, but like, this was such a refreshing watch and it felt so different and fresh. And it weird, it weirdly brought me back to this feel that reminded me of my childhood of wow. this book called The Stinky Cheese Man. Have you oh, I know. I know The Stinky Cheese Man. Yeah, absolutely. Ha- yeah. Like the, the texture of it, the texture of it. Yeah. Like The Stinky Cheese Man came at a time in culture where like gross out humor was kind of the thing. And the Ninja Turtles is kind of from the same era. So yes. I, I get it. I get it. And the Stinky Cheese Man had like stinky friends too, didn't he in that book? And he went on that stinky adventure. And, he went yeah. on a stinky adventure trying to like, all of the gingerbread man. And he's like, you can't catch me. I'm the Stinky Cheese <laughs> stinky Man. Cheese and then man. everyone's like, ew, I don't want to catch you. And that was the joke again That's and right. again. And I'm like, this is my like four-year-old brain was like, this is hilarious. And to <laughs> me now today, I'm like, this is still hilarious. And I'm like, what happened to the Stinky Cheese Man? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. sure you're like getting so much nostalgia feedback from the film being out there. Yeah, definitely. Like the, the the goal of that movie is to try and like scratch the nostalgia itch, but also to reinvigorate that franchise because it's been around forever. Like it hasn't really gone away. The Ninja Turtles, and it might be like one of the few '90s cartoon franchises that's actually like lasted and has gone through many different iterations. But I think the crew and the leadership on this film. Uh, has such an affinity for that original version of it, which is the cartoon and the era we were just talking about, like the early 90s garbage pale kids, stinky cheese man kind of, I guess, design or art culture, comedy culture. It's pretty prevalent back then. Yeah. I yeah. Will, it's such a good nod to it. And, and now, how did you come to the project? How did you become involved? Usually for roles like this, you've worked on a couple movies and people migrate, but they tend to contact people they've worked with because there's trust there. And I've been on everything from like the emoji movie to Spider-Verse. So like the projects I've been on have ranged from, you know, a movie to something that's really, really cool and makes like a cultural impact in animation and sort of changes the landscape of it and inspires filmmakers in the in, in the medium to try and reinvent it so emoji movie then spider-verse and then the mitchells versus the machines and then the sequel to spider-verse these are like all films that thankfully like i had the privilege to be on and they experimented with style visual style in a big way and then the director of teenage mutant ninja turtles jeff rose sent me a dm one day on instagram and he was just like would you have any remote interest in production designing of this and I'd always wanted to be close to the core of a project. Also, that particular IP is like, it felt like a birthright or something. Like when I was a kid, I had like the bed sheets, the lunchboxes. My poor parents had to buy me all those toys. I mean, they, they went to great lengths to satisfy me with merch from the Turtles. So it worked on me and it was like the first love of my life. And here I was with the opportunity through a DM to be like, hey, do you want to like steer the ship in terms of visual design for this movie. And I was like, hell yeah, let's please. Yeah, let's do this. That's amazing. You can't, you have to say yes. Like you've been building up to this moment your whole life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can't say no to that. So what does it actually mean to be a production designer in animation? I I hear production and I think, I just think of like physical production and moving, like what you can walk into on set and touch. But obviously that is, it, it expands far beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. The terms that are used are like shared and like very broad, but they mean such specific things depending on like the kind of film. For animation, a production designer is like, you are like the buck stops with you when it comes to design. You are responsible for how the movie looks. You're in charge of tying together all the beautiful work that your very talented art team provides you with and making it sort of like homogenous, like tying it together and collaging it in a way that makes sense enough so that it's digestible for two and a half hours or two hours on screen. 
so that it's not so jarring when you jump from one scene to another and characters look enough in the same world and environments look like they're enough in the same world. You yourself will design some, but the metric for success, I think, in that role is more like how do you tie together all the brilliant work that's being put in front of you and make it into one cohesive thing on screen? How do you define the that those parameters for a team of artists to make sure that you're like, how do you define the parameters of this world that you're building? It, it's really, really blue sky in the beginning. And I think we're in a time now in animation. It's kind of like a, re- it's a bit of a renaissance because Spider-Verse kicked it off. And now you can really do absolutely anything you want to, no matter how crazy it is that you might design it on paper or on a computer and Photoshop, whatever you use to design images, that can be the reality and it can move and you just got to do it. You got to follow through with it. So it's really blue sky. Like you want to reach really far and beyond the conventions of animation these days. You define the parameters kind of intentionally at the beginning, but you, usually the only intentional things are your ambitions. Like, mm-hmm. I want this to look really different. I want this to be unlike anything, which is what a lot of studios say. Like, we want to see what's never been done before. Yeah. And then you do that and you reach for influences that are outside of the animation box. You know, like DreamWorks and Disney and Pixar have been these totems in animation and its design for a long time. But there's so much more out there. So you look at those things, you respect them, you then turn your back to them and then look at this like vast wilderness of opportunities in terms of design out there and then try to make all of that accessible to, to an audience. So we, we reach back into the early 90s and a lot of illustration from that time. A lot of our artists are also kind of alternative to the typical Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar design sensibility. They have really alt styles. So it, it, also, it also came to casting and being very specific about who you hired based on taste. Yeah. The, yeah. That, that 90s nostalgia, which we touched on, is, is so, like, it, it brings me back to that Nickelodeon, like, gross-out humor that I was also watching. And, and, and it acknowledges it, too, in the film. You know, there's a line in there that describes one of the turtle's heads looking like Arnold's head in Hey Arnold. Yeah. And (laughs) I was like, wow, this is like so self-aware in a way that like it it feels like we're in on the joke and we're sharing it together. Was that something that was written in the script or did that sort of like come as a marriage with the animation style that you guys started to blue sky think and then eventually develop? That came through uh, after like various iterations of that script. And I think uh, our director, Jeff Rowe, always seeks um, truth, like in everything he's doing. Mm-hmm. So that like trickles down into design and the art of the film as well. And being that self-aware and referencing real world things that we're all familiar with, I think speaks to the truth that we are seeking to put into the film so that these characters feel super relatable and, and familiar and likable and like us, you know? So yeah, I think that just came about after hearing the four boys who play the turtles actually speaking to each other as Mm -hmm. kids, just shooting the breeze with one another. Because I think at first they were reading from the script page and the script had been written by adults. Yeah. And then from what I've, you know, from what I've heard, the kids begin speaking and it doesn't sound natural. Then they were just told to like, Hey, just talk as though you normally would. And now they're talking over each other. It's chaotic. And I think out of that, yeah, the inspiration for jokes like that and, and reality and truth and self-awareness and being grounded in the real world and what kids actually talk like these days came about. I love that, that organic. The thing that one of the biggest takeaways from the movie for me was how the four brothers interact and hang and they feel, they just do feel like kids hanging out and that yeah. it's, I feel like so easily, especially in these stories around teens like it can become melodramatic like the drama in their lives can be this thing that like almost feels unrelatable but they their drama and these are kids who also kid turtles they're mutant turtles but they're teenagers they're teenagers they're just like they are we were teenagers that was so authentic and the ways that they were moving the ways they were interacting with the world and the ways that they built a, a small world around themselves as individuals, whether it's with their headphones or their phones, um, like it was so grounded in and in, in real. And that that it felt 
it, it, there was this accessibility to it that I also remember seeing in shows like Hey Arnold. Yeah. Uh, that was so, it was, again, so delightful and so fun to, to be hanging out with them. And that, that, that felt like, like, was that something that you guys talked about? Is like, how do we make it feel like we are hanging out with these kids? In this yeah, story? I think, I think reality, I think relatability speaks to that a lot. I think a lot of us in the audience and me, when I watch the film, I, I, I feel the things you're describing because I, I find the similarities between them and myself when I was a teen. And it all comes back to truth as well. This like franchise is, is so absurd. Like its first iterations, both in comic book form and in cartoon form, is so silly. And it's kind of, you know, these four teenagers are kind of lame. And that's really endearing. Like it's really endearing to be lame as a mm -hmm. teenager and not know who you are and trying to figure all that out. But like this franchise has also been steered toward ultra seriousness too. In a lot of superhero film, when it's adapted to the big screen, whether it's live action or um, animation, I think more often in live action, some things get really serious. Like they're decked out in Kevlar and carbon fiber yeah. and they have like tactical weapons and stuff. And you're like, this isn't fun anymore. This is like really serious. Like yeah. Batman's, Batman's so serious in this movie. But like these these kids are lame and the world is absurd and crazy. I think that's refreshing in a world of like ultra serious heroes, especially yeah. for the franchise too, where it's kind of gone serious. It's nice to like steer it back in the other direction. Totally. Talk, talk yeah. to me about how you incorporated that into the design, into the look. Yeah. Woodrow White is one of the first artists who was ever on the film. Um, his artwork has this really beautiful, naive, slanted, wobbly, kind of imperfect style to it. Nothing is symmetrical. Every face is just like fucked up. Like it's really messed up. And that's yeah. how he draws. And his caricature work is beautiful. So he went from being a fine artist to being a great character designer on the show. That had something in it that we began defining as teenage energy. And mm -hmm. if this is a movie about teenagers, then Every single item, uh, as per our director, Jeff, should be teeming with teenage energy. So that is the directive. It's kind of abstract, but then you try and zero in on what that means. So then we do this deep dive. We're going through as much imagery of like kids' notebooks in high school as we can possibly find. The Stussy S, the checkerboard with the black filled in, drawings of your teacher in like unflattering light full two-page spreads of like all four, like all the members of My Chemical Romance drawn poorly, ultra serious, <laughs> like metal demons fighting with swords. And like, it's all so emotional and so serious, but just like brutally undercut by the skill level. You yeah. know, like the drawings are bad by conventional animation standard by a lot of professional artists in this field. But the endearing thing that I was talking about earlier, and again, it happens with design is like, We've all been there. We've all drawn like that. We've all tried. Like as teenagers, you wanted to be so serious, but you're just not polished. So you come off as lame. Yeah. And it's hard to take you that seriously. So that that is how we we tied that into the design of the film. So the whole world, every person, the characters themselves, every lamppost, fire hydrant of New York City is really imperfect. It kind of feels like it was scribbled and drawn by a teenager in like beginner's art class. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you talk to me about a specific, what maybe it was character, maybe an item or a set set piece that you had to iterate on a number of times with your team to get it to be in the correct teenage, teeming with teenage energy yeah. vibe? Yeah, sure, sure. We, we at one point, 
like one winter after being on this for a couple of years, thought we had it. Like it was this street corner. It'd been modeled in 3D, full color lighting, all the stages that you finish a 3D film with. And we had it, we had our scribbles and this really sort of naive hand-drawn style on top of it. And we sat there with our partner studio, Mikros, who helped bring this thing to life. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, our director, looked at it. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. And looked at it as like, it's not enough. It's not quite there. Because one of our great art directors, Arthur Fong, said that, you know, this is all really charming, but I have to pause this movie to understand that you're trying to inject this teenage energy style into this. Mm. So we all went back to the drawing board. We thought we had it. We did not have it. We went to work again. And then in the new year, we came back and the style was just like on steroids. Like the, 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 the mess, the beautiful mess that comprises every frame of this film was intensified by like 10. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just a matter of, we thought we had it. We thought we really went for it, but we did it. And we had to push ourselves to step outside of our comfort zones and say like, yeah, it's okay to do this in animation. It's okay for the movie to look this messy and this mm -hmm. crazy. And frankly, this naive, like the design of the film kind of is bad, but it's like good, bad. It's like dumb, good. And that's kind of untouched by the animation business and yeah. doubled down on it. When you were in that moment where you're like, we were, we're, we're here. Oh wait, no, we're not. Like, yeah. what do you do as as one of the leaders in this in this of this team to rally yourself and rally the people around you? I think the movie, the process of making the movie, was so much build it and then destroy it over and over and over again that at some point you start to romanticize that process and yep. like it's a little yep. masochistic, but everyone begins to believe that oh, this is really constructive. Actually, like this seems annoying to me and the schedule, but we are like, we are pushing ourselves to a place that we never would have arrived at on passes like one through five of something. Yeah. And sometimes like the distance from your initial take at a task or film is, is really necessary because the person you were like a year ago working on this movie is not the person you are a year later. And the person a year later has gone through the experimentation They've seen a lot and they might've even tired of what the ambition was initially for the design of this film. And it doesn't feel new or fresh anymore. So there's value in that. And the way you rally it is number one, I think just by the nature of it, willing artists. And if you cast right are really game for that and they love the challenge. And then two to rally yourself, just like, Hey, this, this is valuable. And I guess you got to recognize the value in it to be able to do it. Yeah. I love that you keep referring to casting when it comes to your animators, because in a way, like it, it very much is the characters come to life by the people who are animating them and the voices of the people who are performing them. But like casting is the right word. It's like you're building, you're building a, your, your team of talent to bring it to the screen and whatever you're casting based off of what that final performance on the screen will be. Um, I, yeah. I like the crossover of the language again. Yeah. Yeah. For me, like as someone running an art department, it's like, yeah, casting makes a huge impact and like personal taste and where every single drawing you're going to be doing comes from the source of it becomes really important because there's less revision and calibration on the part of myself, my art directors to, to work with that person, that artist on the, on the, on the crew. So as best and as specific as you can cast from the very start, the better. Yeah. Do you have, uh, when you're looking at casting or, or bringing your team together, are you looking for, it's obviously different for every project, but are you like, I need someone who can, who is very good at this, or I need someone who brings this energy to the team. How, how do you find those people? I think energy to the team is always a plus, like the demeanor in a room and the positivity and the rallying that you know, certain artists can bring is invaluable. It's really great. Like positive energy in a room is fantastic, especially like I mentioned before, the process that is so like constructive, but then like destructive over and over again. But then there is like, there are people who have really amazing taste, but maybe they don't have like the technical skills. In animation, because nothing is a given and you have to build every single thing from the ground up and you can't just like put a camera on a box or a crate, you have to, you have to like design the crate, then draw it. Then you got to draw it from all angles. 
and then pass that over to a 3D studio, like uh, a vendor studio like Micros, and have them build it in 3D. So you really got to be intentional with it. Some people are great at the technical stuff, and that's like drawing it from all angles and basically making it into like a schematic. Yeah. Um, then there are people who just have this like really original, compelling expression of art, and then you use that as like the muse, and then the rest of us will take it and kind of work with it and expand and like proliferate that into the rest of the movie. So there are like the source artists who establish taste. Then there are the people who decode it. These are another, another, another different kind of artist who like decodes yeah. it and then proliferates it throughout a, a show. And I think I'd probably break it down into those two categories that everybody, of course, like builds on top of that. Everyone on the team was so talented. So everyone brings a little something personal to it. But I'd say that's like, those are the two big operations. I, I could geek out about so many different elements of the the film that stood out to me, but I'm going to distill it down into talking about how, the bowling ball. Uh, sure. The bowling balls, we can talk about any and all of them because I, in watching it, for some reason, it, they stuck with me because yeah. I could feel, I could see it. And it, in seeing it, I saw like this, the color, of course, as this background and I felt the weight of it, like just the look of it. It felt like this heavy object, but on top of it, there's this layer of the messiness, these like sort of yeah. scribble doodle things on top of it. So I'd love to hear about like the compositing. I don't know if that's the right word of sure. that particular, like those particular objects in the film, um, just so we can start to get a peek into what the process is for, you know, placing a prop in an animated film. Sure, sure. I'm so glad that like you noticed that stuff because we put so much work into that. Like a single bowling ball in the bowling alley with like the turtles meet superfly is you know, a lot of work goes into that. And like it becomes a a close-up macro shot of it and it tells the story of like this villain's maniacal plans. What I found out and what we together found out is that no matter how crazily you design this stuff, as long as you like bathe it in really beautiful and realistic light, you can begin to feel the weight of it. And you can keep one foot in the real world and then one foot in this super heightened, surreal, alien world of color. And we'll also design too, like, like the designs are insane, but they are weighted by good light. So early on, I was trying to figure out how far can you push that? I did a drawing or a painting of a bowling ball and I just went nuts with it and sort of discovered the thing I was just talking about. So then that same object in that particular scene was used as basically a visual storytelling device to communicate human beings across the world being mutated into like mutants or every animal being turned into a mutant. And you can see the speckling, the shimmering of that light crawling over the bowling ball. So you basically do whatever the hell you want with like design and color, but then you yeah. ground it with good light and shadow, like stuff that makes sense to a human being. That's like the one area that you cannot mess with, I think, is the way shadow and light behaves in animation. Yeah. You have the freedom to, and there really are no parameters or, or limitations on what you can do with that. You can inverse it all. You can mess with it. You can, you can omit shadows and lights if you want to, but ultimately, mm -hmm. I think that's what helps most audiences just understand that this is a real 3D space. These are real objects with weight and there are stakes in the world as a result. I think the, the more advanced I get and the more I learn about filmmaking in general is the power of shaping light to tell your story. And, yeah. uh, and, and it, again, it's something that I've like only a few times thought about in animation. Like, of course, you know, deep in the DVD special features of Finding Nemo, hearing about how you think about light in the ocean and the water. But but that is, I like, now that you articulate it, I'm like, of course, that's like one of the staples for grounding this world and, and letting us exist in a world that without context could be really disorienting. And I'm yeah. sure we hang on to that as an audience. Like we need that to to experience this world that then lets us like find the delights in be it a bowling ball or like the shape of someone's head. Yeah. Animation has this tendency to be like really bouncy and almost weightless sometimes. And that can like really lend itself to the humor or like the levity of a film and its tone and stuff. But as Western animation begins to inch a little bit more toward maturity and out of like the 
like a gag a second kind of very young children's content, which I think it's it's beginning to like we're kind of behind here in the West, like Japan and 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 then the East has been touching on like very adult cerebral themes for a while now, like Satoshi Kon and a lot of anime, Perfect Blue and all these great movies and series over there, just not with the budgets. Yeah. But we are we are like turtles turtles help nudge that a little bit. Turtles is like this bad night out with a crew of people who you thought were going to be cool. And then you're like, oh man, I just wish I could go home. Like, this yeah. is bad. Like these kids are crazy. I just want to yes. go back home. And I love it for that. But yeah, feeling the weight of things, like you said, I think makes you feel stakes. And then in turn, animation gets plus, it gets enhanced and it becomes a little bit more for everybody, maybe a little bit more for adults too. And I think that's ultimately where I would love to see it. Well, I watched it with my two adult friends, so uh, I think the answer is right there that, yes, it is. Absolutely. Um, So talk to me about, like, especially I love this idea of like Western animation moving into a more grounded space. But I'd also love to hear your your thoughts on like what new technology is starting to be utilized in the animation space, especially when it comes to AI and in the creation process, um, I think there's a lot of like uns- fear based off of uncertainty and unknowing, but I think there's also a lot of positive stuff that's happening. And I'd love to hear about that. Sure. I think the thing between East and West is that I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I can only assume that at some point, Western animated films became financial devices and tools or instruments. And were viewed more and more as that and less and less as something to push culture. Not the way, and then that's not exactly true with live action. I think there's still great live action. I think that's where a lot of innovation lies in terms of tone and subject matter. But when it comes to animation, it's generally just like someone trying to fit in and a lot of jokes along the way until they finally are accepted by by someone. Yeah. And And um, by four quadrants of someone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that is the def- like the definition of all animation in in, in the East. I, I think it's really eclectic in what it covers. It touches on mental illness, even and like the lies between reality and and fiction within a person's own mind. I'm talking about Perfect Blue again because it's one of my favorites. But it's kind of a goalpost. I think tone is like the untouched opportunity in in Western animation, and Western animation looks more and more beautiful and experimental every single year, especially now, like the filmmakers now in animation are super inspired to make films that look very different. I am just so excited for them to talk different and be paced a little bit different and let emotions settle for a second instead of filling every single second with a gag or a joke or a fart or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, let it breathe and, and let it be taken seriously because it can, yeah. and it really has the opportunity like case in point would be something like Intergalactic on on Netflix. Intergalactic is a romance. There are no superheroes in it. There's no villain really. It's just two people dealing with this romance, and then that is enhanced by these very surreal visuals too. Mm-hmm. The fact that that even exists to me is amazing, and it's really hopeful. I think for adult themes to be explored in animation. Yeah, yeah. It's totally untapped in, or there's so much more to explore in that space. And, and I think that, it, that, that gives me a lot of hope too, thinking of like people who have felt sort of down and out on this industry or like, you know, what is there left? But there is so much more. There's so much more. I think so. Yeah, I think so. As far as technologies go, the, the, the technologies with which you can make a film look gorgeous will not stop. They'll just get better and better. The technologies like Unreal Engine 5, I know are targeted at games, but will also be used for films in terms of like pre-visualization of big effects pieces and stuff. You can quickly put on goggles and explore a space as if you were there on a different planet, if it's like a sci-fi themed thing, which is incredible. Like the fact that you can just inhabit a different world all of a sudden that looks hyper real, is rendered in real time, has beautiful lush lighting and, and looks like the real thing is unfathomable, but it's here. As far as AI is concerned, that's kind of terrifying. I mean, it's, it's positive in that what an individual can do with it is, is cool. If you never had the ability to draw or paint yourself, it is nice. You know, there are great ideas everywhere. If you have a great idea, it's nice to be able to produce visuals to support it. 
The line right now between who's going to potentially be replaced, though, feels a little arbitrary to me. Right now, the emphasis is on people in the literary, the visual arts, but there are like language models that can accomplish creative problem solving and they can come to you with really interesting findings or opinions. There's a self-interest, I guess, with AI, so it'd be like a finding or something, but like its ability to ingest and synthesize and see the order in and make sense of the landscape of film and then like make top level decisions is kind of impressive. You can mold those things into being risk averse or maybe kind of daring. They can come to you with ideas on what the next assembly of a creative troupe might be for film and stuff. I'm not saying all that is like doable at this moment, but it feels so, so close. And my point in saying that is not to like point my finger elsewhere and be like, replace those people. Like those people should be replaced, not us. But it's that like this technology, if not corralled, I think the way it kind of was with the writer's strike and what they accomplished is kind of coming for everybody. I don't think the line is as definitive as it's being drawn right now. Like the question becomes how many people, both in the creative field and in the executive leadership field, do you feel like potentially replacing until you get to the topmost boss? Because it's all possible. And there's no like pesky self-interest or fear. (laughs) And AI didn't just like put down payment on a home and has to like make decisions in reaction to that now. Yeah. And like, they they don't need to sleep. They don't need coffee. Sure. Sure. And like this all sounds like probably like a contrived like pitch for like a sci-fi show or something because it's been explored to death and like science fiction media and stuff, but it's kind of here. Yeah. And you know, if good taste is like, if good taste is like, I think maybe three things, it's like a reaction to the current landscape of the field you're in, mm-hmm. then it's like market data, like what sells and what doesn't. And then the third part of it is like a little sprinkle of your own personal taste. Mm-hmm. All of that is doable by a very creative, I might chat GPT version four right now. Like it can, it can, it can assemble very compelling arguments yeah. for why it thinks the next movie should be made by these three people. Mm-hmm. And that's incredible and potentially terrifying. I don't know. But the way we handle it is like, okay, so maybe artists themselves can use it, but should a studio be able to use it to replace people? I don't know. I guess it's more of like a humanist question. Like, do you like working with people? Do you like working in isolation with servers in a room yeah. with servers? Yeah. I think there are like maybe two days of a month where I don't feel like working with people, but then the rest of them, I, I enjoy working with people. I like the interaction yeah. and stuff. So I mean, I'm, I'm obviously no like speculative science fiction mind, but that's, that's where I see it heading is it's coming for everybody. I've talked a lot with editors on the podcast who talk about sort of like the AI integration within tools like Adobe Premiere or things, things like that. Is there something within the animation space that you're like, wow, this did streamline something for for us in our work or or is it still sort of dancing around that at this moment right now i think there are ai tools in something like photoshop which is widely used as a painting drawing illustrative tool Mm -hmm. for all of animation these days yeah you can if you let's say you painted something like that big but then oh no the camera's actually going to go all the way over here like you need to design like the other two-thirds of this yeah you can type a prompt in the photoshop and say like oh no can you, can you just like extend. extend this image and then boom it's finished that's pretty amazing yeah but at this moment i don't know if you could tell it to create a character based on the styles of these three artists and make that appealing and aspirational and whatever other adjectives you want to toss in there. It's not there yet, but I have no doubt that it will be soon enough. So I'd say right now, the technical, it, it, it can handle the technical side of things and fill in the gaps, but there is still, there's still like the poor human part of it that I can't touch yet. Yeah. It will get there, but at this moment, I can't. Is there anything that we should be talking about or, or aware of to sort of protect that space that you think, you know, to your point about like, the writer's strike, like it, it, it was very specific to literature and, you know, writing in general. But like, is there anything that you think we need to be shedding, shining more light on? I think just the realization that no one is really safe from it. If the idea, if, if, if there is one group of people that truly believes that it's going to replace another group of people and that they will never be touched by it or are not replaceable, that idea is false. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. 
So I think that should create a kind of unity between us all to really make a decision about how you deploy this technology. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, probably the most important thing on my mind is the realization that perhaps in the short term, you can replace some people with this and save a buck, but soon there will be someone above you replacing you and trying to save a buck. So yeah. again, yeah. there's no like rung high enough on a ladder that this can't, that this can't climb to. It's like Robert Patrick is T-1000 just like racing with its dagger hands toward yes. you, like breaking through every brick wall. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, I guess it doesn't have to be terrifying, but it, that's a good realization to make, I think. There's urgency. There's, I think there's urgency and we yeah. need to figure out how to, how to like scale the, hu- the humanized thinking because I, I, we talk on the podcast often about the like Wall Streetification of this industry that is looking at saving quick bucks versus long-term investment in growth and storytelling, which like yeah. we do see payoff. We have case studies of it. And so having been on the business side and and also touched development and also seen how some of these studios are working, it's it's it almost seems like having like sometimes I wonder where where the perspective has gone. And and I do think it's important that we like have these conversations, have these tough conversations and put them in places where people can engage with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, on the, a note of innovation, can, can you talk to me about like the importance of pushing for innovation, especially in this time where like we are seeing a lot of homogenization of art? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that th- there's, there's so much more out there. And I can speak mainly to the animation field because I feel like it's the one lacking the most for the for the potential that it has mm-hmm. in that typically stick with what's familiar because it's working. Because again, the Wall Streetification that you were talking about kind of deems that necessary. Safe. And I, it's safe. It's super safe and it's worked before. So why don't we just keep doing that? There comes a point in, in a production, I think, if you really have something fresh and cool, and your focus test again, people are responding to it and liking it, then that it's worth going for. There, there, there's, there's so much source material outside of the wheelhouse of animation right now or, or, or the, the like conventional space of it to draw from and then make accessible to mass audiences. Um, there's like no end to it. So I think it's really just an argument against stagnation and fulfilling potential with a medium that is waiting to explode more than it already has. There have been like multiple pivotal moments in animation history from like the, 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 the 50s Disney stuff with Sleeping Beauty and, and the seven and Snow White and all that stuff. And then like Ralph Bakshi in the 70s who got a little more gritty with it and Wizards and the Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. And then again, Disney in the 90s that pushed it again, told these stories that made adults cry, like really cry, like the death of Mufasa, the Little Mermaid, yearning to be a part of a, a different world. I don't think animation had done that yet. Mm-hmm. So I think it's time for another innovation like that again with animation. And I really believe it's both in the visuals and the tone of these movies moving yeah. forward. There's a track record of it happening, but now we're at a place where it it, it should happen again. The, the schedule is kind of calling for it. I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I I, I think they're. It makes sense to the the sort of like cycle of tone and and the, the these pillars that you're describing are these turning points in animation. Like, uh, of course, the like epic dramas of the '90s that we saw in live action as well, like seem to like mirror the space of that that yearning in the Little Mermaid that you speak of, or like the death of Mufasa, which like I'm still traumatized by. And I know, I know, and and. It is surprising to see it's I I, I remember I grew up again in the Bay Area and I remember somebody asking a friend whose dad worked at Pixar like in in sixth grade. I was like, Allegra, like what is what's happening with Pixar? What What's the next movie? And she's like, oh, it's like a movie about a dad fish finding his son fish. And I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like and she's like, and it's called Finding Nemo. And I'm like. Finding Nemo, good luck. And then I yeah. watched that movie and I'm so moved by it because of the core. And it and it does it is, of course, a four quadrant movie in a lot of ways. And but like it has this core story. If you love something, 
if you love someone, let them. You have to let them go. That yeah. I come back to as a screenwriter, and 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 I think I am curious, especially with you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles setting pushing for this even grittier, darker tonal messiness in animation. And we're seeing a lot of dark themes explored in live action as well. Like I think of yeah. something, my, one of my favorite shows is The White Lotus, which is like showing yeah. this, this ugliness. And so I'm like, I want to see more of the ugly. I also want to see more of the stinky cheese man in my life. But like that, that will come with time. <laughs> the ugly is very honest though. Again, like it's, it's truth, it's honesty. And that's not someone's best self in a lot of the characters of the white lotus and yes. there's that's real and i think animation has has room for some of that it has room for really complex people who are complicated yeah yeah, yeah. Now, I'd love to wrap up our conversation hearing about how you run your days as someone who is creating as an artist but also someone who has a job that pays the bills. So are you carving out time in your morning to to draw? Like, when do you find that space to be creative in this, you know, world that tends to have us assigned to email and calendar invites? I am not immune to that. Like, I have had the benefit of for almost since about the beginning of July on being on hiatus, just blissfully ignorant of everything happening in the industry, spending as much time away from it, usually in the interest of trying to shake off an old style that I've been working in for three years or a look mm -hmm. for a film uh, and trying to find a new one. So when I'm on a show, I have, I have some agency over a schedule. And basically the thing I'm gunning for the most is desk time. Just like, give me desk time. I can spend a lot of time in the early morning trying to give answers to really difficult creative problems as best as I can, but then inevitably I too must create something to, to show and to hopefully motivate and mm -hmm. to rally people around. So when you're on a show, something like that, when I'm off of one, I am just scrolling through so much Pinterest, like just ungodly amounts of Pinterest looking at photography and old illustrations from various decades, trying to cobble together something new and exciting that, it, well, that excites me personally. Because usually if you roll off a show, like my current situation is you roll off something, you loved it, but you're a little burnt out and you need to not only just recharge, but it's time to start discovering the new batch of inspirations that mm -hmm. inspire you. For me, that's a lot of like visual consumption, just yeah. endless scrolling. And it, it, it appears on the outside like doom scrolling, but it's not. It's yeah, not. yeah. It's constructive. <laughs> it's productive scrolling. It's yeah. future scroll. Yeah. You can't take my phone away from me. Yes. Uh, yes. But, but yeah, so I'm, I'm making boards and I'm doing some drawings now and then to see if I can piece together something new that excites me. But it's usually looking, analyzing at a bunch of stuff, extract from it what I like, and then see if I can get excited and create something that's worth working on for another three years and bring that into a, onto a project and see if you guys like this, should we do this? Cool. Yeah. Do you, sometimes I have images, stills from movies or even, I, I'm also a big Pinterest uh, head. Yeah. Um, Pinhead, isn't that from? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty great. If that's... That should be my Halloween costume. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Big inspiration right now. Like, do you have any images right now that are sticking with you? Any any sources of visual sources that you're like, I can't not think about a, a mine right now is like a man who has glasses on with eyeballs painted over the glasses. Is that from like shot deck or film grab or is that for Pinterest? No, th that one is straight Pinterest. Nice. Nice. And I love it. That's awesome. For me, it is, gosh, it's like old fantasy illustrations for like book covers from the 70s and the 80s mixed with Winamp skins from like the 90s. Wait, what is that? Winamp, Winamp, Winamp was just an MP3 player that came out of Windows a long oh. time ago. And then like Windows Media Player, a bunch of like young kids just started making custom UIs for it. Yes. Everything from like 
patterns to like full like Britney Spears concert imagery. Yes. You have like a Britney Spears themed Winamp player for your MP3s. Oh so my like, gosh. As as stupid as that sounds on the surface, there is something to be there's like an energy and a a approach and a mentality that goes into doing things like that that I think is still valuable to do on vertical <laughs> animated film. Yeah, so it's it's pretty wild. It's all over the place, but those are two that I that I kind of like to play around with and see if I can combine them. That's so rad. That's so rad. Well, thank you so much for for joining us. And where can people follow your work? Thank you. My I'm on Instagram. My name is Yashar. It's Y A S H A R dot C C. That's both my website and my Instagram handle. So you can find me at those places. Great. Well, we, I can't wait to see what what next you you dream up, you drum up, and what happens with the the Winamp skins and the fairy tales <laughs> pictures from the seventies. I hope it's I don't worth know my time. it, but I love that. Thank you, thank you. I'm hoping it's worth my time. Thanks it will for be. Me. Thank you, Yashar, for coming onto the podcast and really just going down many rabbit holes and getting into the details with us. This conversation was just rich with passion and knowledge and excitement for the animated space. It made me think maybe I want to do something in the animated space for the first time ever in my life. But I also loved that Yashar is taking time after a project to reset. It's so easy to think we just need to power through and run at our careers and just keep on taking the next step. But that time off is actually critical for our work as creators. As Yashar said, he needs that time to reset, to let everything fall away from the project that he's just been immersed in for so many years. And I think we should all take a page out of his book or maybe sketchbook in this case to Understand that it's okay to take that time off so you can be a creative collaborator and a creator in the long run. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can like and rate and subscribe and leave comments across all podcast platforms. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can also email us podcast at nofilmschool.com. What questions do you have? What did you think of this episode? We want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. You can follow No Film School across all social media platforms at No Film School. And you can geek out with us on nofilmschool.com anytime. I am so grateful for you tuning in. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.